You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on this very fine day. Um, It's actually quite nice outside. It's no longer oppressively hot. Uh, I know some people love oppressively hot. I'm not one of them. But anyway, it's nice outside. Um, I uh, have to remind you that today uh, Kevin is off. So if you're only listening to me because you only hear the dulcet tones of our king of satire later in the program, then I can warn you ahead of time. You can move on. Uh, for all the rest of us, uh, we've got an action-packed program. Uh, we're going to uh, hear from um, the uh, from Raylene Cooper, from the Amurujuba traditional custodians of uh, the Burrup hub area in Western Australia in the Kimberleys. Uh, before that, we're going to have a a look at um, a backgrounder on um, the gas exploration and fossil fuel funding through the eyes of divestment, uh, ethical investment uh, a group, um, campaigning group uh, called... Um, uh, what, what's their name? What's their name? It was a fabulous uh, um, thing I listened to uh, about um, divesting. Uh, from uh, and ethical um, uh, stuff. It was um, ethical investment. It was it was it's part of a sustainable living festival, which is going on at the moment. Um, and it was called uh, Money Talks, Money Walks, divesting from fossil fuels. Um, and it was done by the Yarra Library Service, and they're going to have another one. Uh, and it was about and it's going to be about stockholder. Um, activism, and that's going to be next Thursday uh, on the 23rd at uh, 6.30. So look up their website and you'll be able to uh, find out. But um, Kylie Robinson is from an organisation called Market Forces who uh, look at uh, uh, how um, banks and insurance companies are uh, uh, investing in fossil fuel and how to uh, unlock that diabolical uh uh, connection, um, but anyway, so we're going to have a listen to a little bit about that, and then we're going to go on to finding out what's at stake uh, when it comes to Woodside and the gas um, exploration in Western Australia. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, talk to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. They're planning a mountain road trip, which uh, is going to be in March. Uh, for people who, uh, you know, a lucky 20, group, a group of 20 who are going to go up to the high country and actually experience uh, the reason for why uh, the fight is on when it comes to native 
log um, logging in Victoria, and uh, it it uh, is uh, based on the principle that you really need to go out to the bush to find out why it's so important to uh, understand your country that you live in. But anyway, we're going to talk to Cam Walker about that. We're going to move on after that to uh, talking about homes and uh, why uh, giving um, handouts to uh, um, investment investors uh, buying up investment properties uh, and negative gearing is anti-intuitive when it comes to supplying homes to uh, so many people who are now homeless. We're going to be talking to May Aziz from Everyone's Home, who's got quite a lot to say about such a thing. We're going to follow that with uh, uh, Don Sutherland, who's uh, got a lot to say about uh, Mr Lowe and uh, his apparent um, standoff with the government. But uh, how much is... That really a standoff. <laughs> but before we do, we'll, uh, a reminder, renew your subscription or become a new subscriber. Well, if you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, it's sure know where you are. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. Yes, it's Subscriber Drive, and uh, if you want to be part of the membership, then uh, you should go online th- at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe, or you can ring up during business hours 0394198377, and uh, there's a, a whole range of different levels that you can, depending on your uh um, how much uh, you earn? It's uh, forty dollars for um, a pensioner. It's uh, eighty dollars for uh, employed. It's uh, one hundred and fifty for a band or a corp, uh, you know, a company. Or it's three hundred dollars if you've got a big heart and you want to keep three CR on the. Air, that's a solidarity rate. Uh, when you become a member of 3CR, you can actually come and help out here or you can uh, come to uh, the the steering committee meetings, that sort of stuff, because that's what a membership is. But anyway, um, hopefully you will either renew your uh, annual subscription or you can become a new member if you've discovered that this station is the best one to support because it has lots of news and views that you don't hear all over the place. Um, You might have heard that uh, the bad smell ex-Prime Minister has popped up again um, overnight, you know, like one of those gophers in the video game where you have to bang them on the head. He, he's using the old agenda-setting headline trick where he says something inflammatory that pushes people's buttons so that he can get on air and pretend that he's actually a respectable mouthpiece for opinion. 
Um, he says something like, going soft with China is like England's appeasement policy with Hitler. And there's a picture uh, that even The Guardian is using with uh, the camera shooting him up, you know, from his upwards as if he's a, a you know, a, a stand, a, a, you know, a, a solid uh, and important figure that uh, we should be listening to. Um, and, you know, I was thinking you really should have to think to yourself which right-wing American think tank is actually supplying the lines for the little tacker because he hasn't had an original thought in his head for the entire political career that he has been operating in. And also, like Trump, the real question is why has he been, hasn't he been prosecuted for corrupting the state? Um, oh, that's right. There are custodial sentences for stealing cars and demonstrating, but no specific laws against robo-debts, sports rorts, or handing contracts to mates without required skills. Ah, business as usual. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis. Full program online, slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, the big news over the last month has been the reporting of the profits of uh, major companies. All of them are putting out their profits um, statements and, uh, of course, our our, um, our best paper, uh, Financial Review, you know, only second to uh, the Green Left Weekly. Uh, the Financial Review is, of course, fawning all over, over the uh, big money in town. And uh, Shell, um, uh, uh, 43.8. $43.36 billion in the 12 months to the end of September 2022. That's $43 billion. I don't even know how to say that. $43.36 billion. Is, that's in profits. We're talking profits there. And the BP, British giant BP, announced um, it's scaling back its climate goals after reporting record record annual profits of nearly $28 billion in 2023, the biggest in the company's 114-year history. Uh, not to be outdone, the Commonwealth Bank profit after tax last year, it was um, $8.65 billion, up 19.8%. Um, but this year, it's 52 billion, which is up 9% on the previous first half, um, aided by $77 billion in new mortgages. The average size of a loan was higher, up to $417,000 in December, from 
$5 six months earlier, which of course is not news to most people who um, were aware of uh, the chairman of the Reserve Bank, Mr Lowe's conversation at the Senate hearings um, over the week. Now, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because one element of the SLF, that's what they're calling themselves now, the Sustainable Living Festival, has been looking at ethical investing and greenwashing. And as I was saying earlier, I was listening to a session held by Yarra Libraries called Money Talks, Money Walks, Divesting from Fossil Fuels. If you go to their website, you will be able to find this session and next Thursday, the 23rd, is the follow-up session about shareholder action. But what I wanted to focus on here is a couple of things that Kylie Robinson from Market Forces said. Market Forces has, um, as their page on the web says, believes that the banks, superannuation funds and governments that have custody of our money should use it to protect not damage our environment. There, the um, organisation exposes the institutions that are financing environmentally destructive projects and help Australians hold their institutions accountable. That's their function. 20 years ago, the concept of ethical investing was seen as a joke by the financial industry, but not anymore. And in fact, campaigns run by community groups supported by the work of research organisations like Market Forces has been targeting banks and insurance companies with the result that projects like Adani's Carmichael coal mine is a fraction of the size that it was originally projected to be. However, as I've just mentioned, the big bucks, big profits that are coming out of places like Shell and BP um, and the Commonwealth Bank led me to ask Kylie Robinson about the effectiveness of the tactics of starving fossil fuel terrorists from operating when they announced such big profits. And um, this is what he had to say. I, I remember seeing the question in the chat and I think it pertained to uh, Shell and the mega profits they've, yes. they've, they've made in the past year. Yeah. Um, so happy to take that on. Uh, one thing to note right now is that fossil fuel companies are absolutely flushed with cash. They have made massive windfall profits in the last years uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, coal, coal, gas, oil prices are at you know almost all-time highs and these companies are just raking it in. So that is the main uh, driver for their profits. It actually reversed a trend for, for a long time, which was that fossil fuel companies were um, increasingly finding it harder to make the profits they, they once were. They weren't enjoying the, the dominance of the energy global energy mix that they once were as renewables came on and took more and more. But as we've entered into a, an energy crisis um, since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Fossil fuel companies have made just gigantic profits, which is actually in some cases making the work we do harder uh, to do because uh, previously accessing finance um, needed to come through, say it was a new fossil fuel project, it needed to come through a bank in the form of a loan or a bond or something like that, and there was inherent risk involved in that company. But as they've made such massive profits now, some of these companies are able to almost uh, take on those projects just based off the money that they're making. Um, and reinvest it that way. So it is making our job harder to do, but it's almost beyond beyond our control because uh, due to the nature of uh, fossil fuel companies and commodity prices, they fluctuate drastically, and we just happen to be in a period of time right now where fossil fuel companies are making heaps of money. <laughs> so, 
sorry for that kind of depressing answer, but that's, yeah, that's the reality. Yeah, so it puts uh, um, capitalism into and the fight for the environment in a particular perspective, and it also puts the mealy-mouthed words of uh, the bad smell uh, ex-Prime Minister around uh, China and uh, the um, sabre-rattling um, statements into their proper context, really. Um, it's hard not to think that the reason they're having a war in the Ukraine is so that big fossil fuel terrorists like investor, their investors, capitalism and colonisation of resources as a system can continue without requiring life support. The fight continues, as we know, there is a world to win. Anyway, but closer to home, the four big banks made, um, make pledges not to finance new coal and uh, projects, but gas is the new green. And this is what uh, Kylie Robinson had to say about that in a closer, uh, if, we, if we look at it from an uh, Australian perspective up close with this greenwashing around um, gas as being a, uh, a transition um, uh, fuel. For the banks and insurance companies, the risks are actually greater than just the physical risks. There are legal risks involved, um, particularly for the banks who have committed to the goals of the Paris Agreement and net zero emissions by 2050 to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees by continuing to fund uh, fossil fuel companies that are building new fossil fuel projects. This is a direct contravention of their public commitments. So who are the big four Australian banks funding? Well, these are our big three climate baddies at Australia, at least, sorry, at market forces, at least in Australia. So there's Whitehaven Coal, um, who have been loaned to as recently as 2020 by NAB and Westpac. That loan is still active. There's Santos, who are building numerous new oil and gas projects around the world, not just in Australia. Um, and then there's Woodside Energy, who has one of the biggest gas projects proposed in the world in the Scarborough Pluto 2 project. That project alone would uh, cause an estimated 1.37 billion tonnes of CO2 over its lifetime and operate into the late 2040s. Um, so all these companies, essentially, the reason they're our targets is because they have shown no uh, willingness whatsoever to change their business models. They are doubling down. They are building massive new projects completely at odds with the climate science that we know about. And yet the banks continue to fund these companies and sanction those business models. Fossil fuel companies, in order to grow, in order to thrive, in order to build new fossil fuel projects, they need a few things. So they need debt, which they get in the form of loans and bonds from banks. They need insurance. They need uh, these companies, insurance companies, both to invest in them and also to insure their uh, projects, their new fossil fuel projects. And they need investors and investors can take many forms, whether they be super funds or investment banks, institutional investors, or uh, just individual standalone investors. They need all of these things to uh, sanction their business model. Um, and what we've found with divestment is that it increasingly uh, makes the cost of doing business harder and harder for fossil fuel companies, particularly they've found this out in the coal industry where they're having increasingly harder time finding finance that they need to build new coal mines or new coal power stations, and the avenues they're needing to pursue are becoming increasingly uh, more unconventional. And that's what we're really trying to do with divestment is essentially isolate the business um, and make it really hard for them to do uh, continue with their current business model 
until they change it to something that is more environmentally friendly. The banks often like to, uh, one of their retorts to us is uh, the weighting of their renewables investment against their fossil fuel portfolio, which, of course, it's great that they are investing in renewables in the first place, but it completely defeats the purpose of what we're asking them not to do, which is to invest in new fossil fuels. Because if they, it, it doesn't matter how many renewables they've got on the go while they're still uh, investing in companies that are pumping out massive amounts of emissions. And I think the same thing could probably apply to um, superannuation, um, mm. which is, you know, offsetting in general in, in climate change is something that's fraught with, you know, kind of some inherent dangers and risks. Our main thinking around private equity, or like, sorry, the uh, if if a bank is too divest and then that company ends up in the hands of private equity and then they force uh, said fossil fuel company to extract ever more fossil fuels at increasingly risky in increasingly risky methods um, just to make more profit before they run the company into the ground, isn't that an inherent risk? Well, yeah, it is. It is a massive inherent risk for sure. Our main retort to the banks and the investors that we engage with is that it's hard to imagine how the banks could be failing more in their approach to uh, preventing the co- or changing the company's behavior that they're currently invested in. For instance, it's hard, it's hard to think how uh, a private equity firm would make, say, Woodside extract more gas than they're already planning to do with Scarborough, which was funded by uh, ANZ, NAB and Westpac. So as it presently stands, I think the bank's approach is already not good enough, uh, given the climate crisis that we're currently facing. Um, it would be a, it would be incredible if the banks were able to use their position as a listed company, as an institutional lender of choice, to actually influence those companies to change their behaviours. Um, but currently, we're not convinced about the merits of their engagement approach, um, and we're not convinced that those companies are getting the message about how much they need to change their behavior. If they do decide to go down the private equity route, um, I suppose that is uh, an inherent risk in the divestment approach. But again, given the, given the seriousness of the climate crisis we're currently facing and the banks and super funds failed stewardship in changing those companies, it might just be that it's a risk that we ultimately have to take. And it's not necessarily that that will eventuate anyway in the hands of private equity like as i was pointing out before um adani found it very hard once um the carmichael coal mine became so toxic that no bank or insurance company wanted to touch it to actually do business in the way they intended and uh that mine is operating at a fraction of the size it was intended to um which i consider to be a real win for divestment and adani is currently pursuing many unconventional forms of financing such as an insurance mutual that they want to set up in Australia to where they'll take on some of the risk amongst other coal companies who equally want to insure each other because no one wants to touch them. But um, yeah, it's just a, it is, it is an inherent risk, but I think it's a risk that um, is not as, not as bad as the alternative. But for me personally in the banks uh, and how it relates to the banks context, it would be, I mean, the prime example I can think of is that the banks have now set policy uh, restrictions that say by 2025, we expect our clients to have published climate transition plans. And we always say, okay, 2025, that gives Woodside and Santos at least three more years to lock in those projects that they're building for decades to come. 
we think your first starting point, if you are genuinely committed to being an Azuro bank, should be that a client is not building a new fossil fuel project. That should be the starting point. And that should be the beginning of the engagement process. It's not unreasonable to go in there and say, we are a bank that is committed to net zero, keeping uh, with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Your current business model is incompatible with that. If you want to continue a banking relationship with us, you need to change your business model. Um, And if that business fails to do so, then divestment should be the approach. But the reason we think engagement from the banks is problematic is because we don't think they're doing that at all. We don't think there's any talk around that. I think the reason it is 2025 is deliberately a softball approach to keep those clients on for as long as possible. Um, and yeah, I think I think engagement at this stage in the game um, needs to come with serious repercussions for, for failing to meet expected standards. And if if that's not happening, then divestment is is the logical next step. At least that, that's the way we view it. It's hard to say because uh, energy markets are so unpredictable. I mean, most most reputable um, energy agencies, including the International Energy Agency, which is the peak body um, for energy in the world, and they provide expert advice on energy policy. Um, and we were all eagerly awaiting their uh, the release of their World Energy Outlook last year because they had previously said that if the world is to meet the goal of 1.5 degrees, no new fossil fuel projects can be approved. We wanted to see if they would re- repeal that finding uh, based on the latest energy crisis. And they actually doubled down and said that anyone who thinks that the current energy crisis can justify a wave of new oil, coal, oil and gas projects is kidding themselves. We need more renewable energy. This isn't a crisis of renewable energy. It's a crisis of not enough renewable energy. So I'm just hoping that uh, the world follows the, the advice of the experts and actually takes away the power of these fossil fuel companies. We've been uh, listening to uh, Kylie Robinson from Market Forces. Uh, he was talking at a uh, a talk at uh, part of uh, Sustainable Living Festival, uh, Money Talks, Money Walks, Divesting from Fossil Fuel, which was held by Yarra Libraries on uh, Thursday. Now, um, that kind of background to what's going on in the investment, uh, what the uh, big companies like Woodside and Santos who who are threatening uh, incredibly important Indigenous lands, uh, uh, what they think they're doing um, and what they think they can get away with uh, leads us to what the capitalists want us to sacrifice for their profits, such, which is dressed up as essential. Now, um, I got to speak to uh, Raylene Cooper, who is a Madhu Unura woman, and she's the former chair of the... Ma- Murujura um, Aboriginal Corporation. Uh, the uh, Murujuga traditional custodians have called for a moratorium on further industrial in- development on the Burrup Peninsula, um, the site of um, thousands of pieces of rock art. Now, this is all in the Kimberleys in uh, Western Australia. Um, they say Woodside's planned Burrup Hub gas expansion is fundamentally incompatible with the protection of cultural heritage on the Burrup Peninsula or Murujuba. And so this is what uh, uh, Raylene said to me. Thanks for talking to me today, Raylene. Um, what we're talking about here is actually what's going on in the Burrup 
Peninsula. Can you give uh, my listeners some understanding of what's going on for the traditional Castonians? Yes, yeah, sure. Good morning, everyone. Um, well, we have a, um, a UNESCO World Heritage nomination um, area, surrounding area and site. Um, up for nomination, I think it's going to be um, sort of um, announced um, in the next coming weeks uh, or couple of days. Um, there's a million, over a million petroglyphs of rock art over from 40 to 40 plus 50,000 year old rock art. Um, we have a, a Woodside Petroleum LNG. Uh, we have the Pluto Project. We also have the Scarborough Bar Hub um, that is waiting to be um, starting development um, anytime soon, um, which is an extension um, and an added project. Um, on uh, the Pluto and Woodside um, projects. We also have a Yarra fertiliser plant who sits directly in the middle of all these um, amazing sacred significant sites. We also have um, Pertamin, which is a chemical urea plant, um, up for a project, uh, developed project within any time soon. Um, at this stage, SOS um, Save Our Songlines have put forward a Section 9, which was knocked back by um, our Minister, Tanya Pilbasik. Um, we've now um, been granted a Section 10 in terms of having a reporter come and report, um, you know, the concerns um, of everybody um, that has put in submission for a Section 10, which is a, which is a protection order um, over the Burrup and particular areas in the Burrup. Um, I, I'm extremely concerned um, of these projects, um, even more concerned that these projects will consist of 40-plus um, thousand-year-old rock art being moved or removed from their area and site. Um, for us as cultural custodians, um, we have an obligation and responsibility to look after the Ngura, our country, our land. Um, we also have certainly a responsibility of our history to preserve and protect it. Um, we find it highly... Um, incredibly, um, you know, out, out, outrageous that our state government and federal government are supporting these projects to go ahead, given that um, it's, it's affecting us cultural custodians, it's affecting our history and it's affecting what we do. We practice and we preach and we teach and we still practice our law and our traditions um, in this area. And in saying so, our connection to the country um, it's phenomenal. We, we have a, a heartfelt, warm um, unit, unity and solidarity out there for all who are concerned, um, for all the Ngurra people all around Australia who are going through the same fight we are in terms of protecting our cultural heritage. Um, we're, we're hoping that the UNESCO World Heritage nomination um, announcement We'll, we'll keep some protections over the borough. However, if it gets through because of the universal values, then let's, let's hope and welcome this, um, this outcome. However, our concerns are great. Um, not only is it that they're um, destroying and desecrating our sacred and significant sites, um, government and industry are also um, putting more um, impact on the um, climate change, our global warming, um, you know, with the emissions that are, um, that are in critical right now, um, our Earth feeling the brunt of this. And we can see all over the world that there is significant changes in our climate, there's significant changes in our sea levels, r rising sea levels, 
Um, the heat is getting much more. The water, the rain, I mean, when is this going to stop? When is enough enough? And when is our government going to come to the table with what they promised when we had all um, elected them for our current government? You know, um, they made these um, announcements and uh, in terms of climate change, in terms of, um, you know, connecting and coming together with the First Nations people, when and how? How is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Yeah, well, like you say, uh, it is contentious. This Woodside um, uh, liquefied natural gas and the, also the fertiliser projects, it just seems like uh, quite an extraordinary thing to be doing when you've got uh, such a cache of incredible, uh, world-significant uh, rock art. That's right. It's right. It, it, it just blows my mind um, that, you know, our state government would think, you know, Moraduga being deserving of a UNESCO World Heritage nomination, that they would turn around and... and you know, put more projects and more um, destructive projects um, in the same area. You know, and if people people need to come and see what is happening out on the borough, people need to come and see um, the photos um, that are out there with the concerns of these big projects. Um, they don't. Um, you know, you have to come and see it. Do, do, um, you, do, and, you think, do you think that it, because it is so distant from Perth and places like that in other parts of the country that people are really just not realising what's at stake? That's right. I mean, you know, we've had so many visitors come in um, and come and look at um, this, this most beautiful, magnificent, remarkable area. Um, you know, to see the blue-green aquacies, the red rocks, um, you know, the mother that has been carved, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And, um, you know, this is our rock art. This is rock, this is art, this is history. This is telling us back in that, you know, that the, some of the rock art features um, are of the colonials coming in on their ships. Um, we're talking, you know, in the 1800s or more. Um, you know, so this is documented, archived um, history that is, is documented and archived on these rocks. So it's it's huge, um, and I don't see how you know our forty plus thousand year old rock art is any different um, to the painting that was um, had the woodside stamped on it. You know that's a hundred years old. How is it more important than what our rock art is? How is it more important that people aren't understanding? We they need to come and see what the concerns are, what we have. You've got this most beautiful, unique, remarkable. Um, universal valued area of significance for not only cultural people and the people of, of culture, which we carry this. We also have, you know, um, scientists who, who have evidence that our, our rock art is being slowly destroyed um, by the emissions and the destruction um, and the pollution that come from these projects that sit right smack bang in the middle of it. How does it work? Industry and culture do not work hand in hand. What, what, they never why, have and they never will. Why have they put a f- fertiliser plant in the middle of the rock art? What, what, are they collecting guana or what, what is that? Why? Well, I mean, that's a question for that government, the governments of the world and industry to, to tell us. The truth needs to be told. You know, there, there's always this argument um, and, you know, to and fro controversy um, whether these emissions are destroying our rock art. Listen, 
This rock art's been here for evolutions after evolutions, millenniums. And yet only in the last 40 years and 30 years plus, they're just starting to understand more and know the significance of the changes physically, all right, and the scientific changes. We can go out here and see that our, our, our Monday is being destroyed, the rock. Um, you know, the patina and the, it's flaking. Um, the coloration of the Monday, the rock. You know, um, it's getting a, a sort of fungi on it. So, and then we look at the environment around it. Um, you know, our medicine plants, the normal plants that are supposed to be out there that should be blooming when they bloom and flowering when they flower, they don't do it anymore. Our animals, there's three distinctive kangaroos that no longer exist on the borough in the last three, four years. I mean, this is a concern. If that's what's happening to our animals and our environment, our plants and animals, can you imagine what it's doing to the humans that are out there working and who live in the area? So this is a big concern, and people really need to start understanding that this doesn't just affect the surrounding areas. It, it affects us as well. And as cultural custodians, we have an obligation to look after the, and preserve the water, but we also have an obligation to look after the people within it. You've um, already found that uh, Woodside's gas developments have destroyed thousands of pieces of the irreplaceable ancient rock art. That's true, isn't it? Yes, that's very true. Um, I was sitting on that um, Pluto project with my mum and I couldn't understand why she was crying and so upset and bawling um, when these big giant rocks are being ripped out of the ground like a tooth being ripped out of your mouth. And, you know, I now understand why. And a hill, a mountain that used to be there, is no longer there. And right sits bang on the middle of it is a giant um, gas plant, and right next to it is another LNG plant. And the pipeline that they want to go is, it's, you know, 500 kilometres on the seabed, um, next to the, the right next to the gas pipe that's already there. I mean, this already, you know, 22 holes in the six, 22. Um, you know, drill holes in the next two, um, next six years, um, that's a lot of digging around in the seabed. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, it's very concerning. I mean, we're talking about our songlines. We're talking about the connection from this water all the way to the other side of Australia and connecting through all these um, other significant country and significant areas within other tribes. It's, it's a huge concern. Now, you've been talking about um, wait. you want them to wait until the United Nations World Heritage Committee finishes its uh, uh, process, aren't you? Yeah, well, and more so the fact that um, this is being um, announced anytime soon, which is fantastic and very welcomed. And we, we're praying that it gets, it gets over the line, um, given that, um, you know, the, the universal value that Murujuga um, hold. But in saying that, it's really the Section 10 where we're waiting and, and, and hoping that, um, you know, all um, projects are being on, um, kept on hold or are on hold and the Minister, um, you know, does state that, you know, she should put this on hold until the Section 10 um, reporter's report is given to her and then, obviously... Um, whatever decision our minister makes, um, and she makes the final decision once the reporter, Section 10 reporter, has done their report and investigation, um, then we can go from there. But until then, it makes no sense that they can they are able to continue any work that needs to be done, and we're talking about these projects, without the Section 10, of course, um, you know, 
being looked at and um, awaiting those processes. Um, given that it's such an important uh, thing, uh, what do you hope other people uh, could do to help you uh, raise awareness? Look, um, we're trying to raise as much awareness as we can. Um, people don't understand the significance and the impacts that are going on up in the Pilbara area. Western Australia, there are other areas within Australia that are going through the same thing, Mug. Um, and we feel for them. Um, we know that this is a challenge for them. Um, but for all Yorra people, um, and, but also for everybody, this is such an important um, a history that we're, we're coming to. Um, to get UNESCO World Heritage, it would be the most valued, um, you know, in terms of tourism. Um, we don't have to put all these projects up. You know, there's millions and millions of dollars in tourism that we could establish and bring people to our country and show them what we hold here the most significant, oldest rock art in the world. And, you know, you talk about, you know, um, Egypt. They're 14, you know, we're four, they're only 14,000 years old. You know, we're looking at 50, 60,000-year-old rock art um, history, you know, a millennium and an evolution that still stands strong. And we're wanting people, everybody who has concerns, not only for our cultural heritage, but also um, it's a human rights thing. We have a right to protect... Our history. We have a right to preserve and protect what is ours. And we're not given that right at all through our Aboriginal Heritage Act, which is solely not to help the Indigenous people. It's to actually destroy um, their significance. Um, it needs to be looked at. It needs to be stripped down and looked at. Um, you know, we also have our environmental issues. Um, the impacts that these projects all around Australia and beyond, um, the impacts are... Um, you cannot um, come back from this. Once we get to that more than critical stage of our environment, look, we're seeing it around the world now. Mother Earth is not happy and it's not going to get any better. And if we want to survive the next 50 years, we need to start waking up people. Mm. Thank you very much, Raylene, for talking to me. No worries. Thanks so much. And, uh, yeah, that was Raylene Cooper. She is from the uh, Burrup. Um, she's a um, Murundjura person, and uh, they're calling for a halt on the uh, Woodside's expanding of their gas um, uh, exploration and build in um, the Pilbara uh, off the coast of Western Australia. Uh, you're on 3CR with Annie, and uh, before we uh, move on, Here's some important subscriber news. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well-crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Yeah, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth who is going to tell us about a great opportunity to go to the bush on a road trip. G'day, Cam. How are you? Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can hear you. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, you'd think I was an amateur. <laughs> uh, tell us about this uh, mountain road trip. I think it's a fabulous notion because uh, Friends of the Earth has uh, been working uh, hands-on uh, around uh, stopping logging in uh, the old growth forests in the uh, high country. Now, it seems like a terribly distant place for people who are stuck in Melbourne. Almost a six-hour drive. Um, but just for a tiny bit of context, so as people probably know, the Victorian government has committed to end native forest logging by the end of this decade, by 2030. It's clear that that's too late. It's really good they've got a plan to transition out, but it's too late. So we're saying we really need to get onto it now. Um, and uh, with a new environment minister after the November election, we have a chance to convince her to do the right thing and bring forward the transition plan. So we have been highlighting a range of areas um, up in the high country and we've picked areas of very high conservation value and areas that if they were logged, they would profoundly change the landscape or put logging into new areas. So we've been concentrating on the Mount Stirling area up near Mansfield, the Little Dargo River, which is kind of up near Mount Hotham, and then Mount Wills, which is where this walk is too. And it's up near Victoria's highest mountain, which is called Mount Bogong, up near Mount Beauty in the northeast of the state. Uh, very beautiful country, very beautiful country. And and like you say, six-hour drive, it just seems almost uh, a world away. But uh, the reason why it would be a great opportunity to go on this road trip is because it would bring people a very, very close to uh, the values that uh, make it so important to actually fight for for um, the stopping of the logging. Yes, absolutely. I think once you've seen a place, it's very hard to imagine, you know, what it might be like once it's logged. And the reason, or one of the reasons we picked this area is because there's a, been a lot of logging in that area, but this is moving into an entirely new zone. So it's in the headwaters of what's called the Big River, and that becomes the Mitter Mitter River, and that flows into the Dartmouth Dam and then flows into the Murray River. So if you know that northeastern area, it's one of our most amazing rivers. It's really popular with people that like to go fishing and really popular with rafters, uh, river rafters. Um, and there will be logging in the headwaters up there. And um, it's uh, it's probably a four, four and a half kilometres walk up the mountain from the road, but on the top of the mountain is old growth snow gum forest. So we oh, also want to educate people to that, that we're losing these uh, amazing woodlands because of repeat fire, fire becoming you know too frequent under climate change and also because of a thing called dieback, which is caused by a beetle. Uh, so it'll show people the mountaintop, the snow gum forest up there, and then the lower down forest where they're planning to log. So um, I note that... Um you can have 20 people can sign up to go on this journey. Yep. For about, uh, I think it's nine days, which is a bit of a road trip, a trip and we'll organise, uh, you know, carpooling and we'll go up through Bright, we'll do a forum in Bright, we'll visit some fire-affected forests um, up near Mount Hotham, then we'll go down to the Mitter Mitter and do a little kind of public action there, then we'll lead this guided walk. There's no limit to the number of people that can come by on the walk itself and we've been already hearing from people in Albury there's like Extinction Rebellion from Albury are super keen to come down there's local conservation groups so there'll be a lot of locals come to the walk at Mount Wills uh, which is uh, I believe it's Saturday the 18th of March uh, but yeah we'll have a limit of 20 for the full road trip just so that we can kind of manage our impact and fit into campsites and that sort of thing.
Yeah, yeah, and that uh, you want people you can you can um, do um, uh, car share, but uh, you, people need to bring their own uh, camping gear and stuff like that. So um, March fourteenth to the nineteenth, uh, and it sounds like a major networking affair as well. Yeah, it will be. Um, we're going to, or we're running an event um, in Bryce, and we've invited, you know, the local sustainability groups and the anti-gold mining groups and the land care organisations and local traditional owner groups, etc., along to just come and talk about what they're doing. So we want to see it as a way of, you know, building connections and building solidarity between the groups, and then also with city-based groups like Friends of the Earth, uh, and likewise in the Mid and Mid Valley, we've invited, you know, the the small number of local groups up there and all the local to, you know, come come round to the camp and have a yarn and tell us what their issues are. So we're just hoping it will be a networking opportunity. We want to do a lot of these this year to different regions just to kind of reconnect. You know, we all had those years of the lockdowns and I think a lot of us got out of the practice of being out on the streets and out in the community and this is just part of that process of really getting back out there, meeting our allies, having a listen, having a look, you know, building some alliances. That's fantastic. So how do people get in contact to find out more about this? Um, if you look on the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website and probably if you do a web search, Friends of the Earth Melbourne Mountain Road Trip, it should come up pretty easily. Um, and then if you RSVP, then we will send you some details on the logistics and what to bring and then we'll try and kind of put people together with vehicles. Um, it's, uh, you know, you'd, because it is fairly remote, you wouldn't want a car that's not going to make it. So, you know, yeah. if you feel comfortable that your, your car can do a journey of about seven, 800 kilometres on dirt roads, not four-wheel driving, but on dirt roads, then, yeah, consider bringing it along. Otherwise, we'll just try and match people up. Okay. Um, sounds like a, a marvellous thing to do. It's uh, March the 14th to the 19th. Uh, Friends of the Earth, Melton road trip. Thanks for talking to us today. That little plug that we have this moment, you know, to convince the government, convince the Environment Minister on forests. So please have a look at that. There's lots of petitions doing the rounds. There's lots of commentary on social media. So yeah, if you feel up for it, ring the Premier's office and politely just remind him that the community wants to see forests protected and it's time to bring forward the transition out of native forest logging. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Cam. Hey, Will you come to my aid If I'm in trouble Will you know, will you hear me Your voice split the waterways Drove a day through battle Made a circle from a speck and if I have a hard time being in my body, if I want to run from everything she tells me, if I want help from all I've hated, can I borrow your eyes and let love Take me Hey Will you know My name Or will my name Not matter In the circle You create I hear 
In your moving water, I am my own shelter. If I fail, oh farewell. And if I have a hard time being in my body, if I wanna run from everything she tells me. If I want help from all I've hated, can I borrow your eyes and let love take me? Can I borrow your eyes and let love take me? You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to move, we were just listening to Cam Walker and his great foe, uh, uh, Friends of the Earth um, road trip into the high country with uh, intention, big intense uh, intention. Uh, we're uh, now going to have a listen to a chat that I did with May Aziz. She's uh, from everyone's, everybody's home um, and they maintain that another interest rate rise set to be passed on to renters. Um, everybody's home campaign is calling on the government to phase out taxpayer handouts to investors. And this is what May had to say. Can we start off by you telling me a little bit about everyone's home campaign? Yeah, Everybody's Home is a national campaign made up of 400 organisations across the country and those are housing organisations, homelessness organisations, places that do emergency relief for people who are struggling to pay their rent um, and also providers of community housing. And it's also made up of about 40,000 just concerned Australians across the country who've joined our campaign because they want to see housing become more affordable. And that's really our goal, to fix housing in Australia and make it more affordable for the people who need it. Yeah, and uh, you've pointed out that, um, in fact, that uh, the government um, uh, propping up uh, taxpayer handouts to investors is actually part of the problem. That's absolutely right. So um, basically, as soon as these tax handouts for investors started coming in in the 90s, what we've seen is a market that's become less and less affordable. And at the same time, we've seen the government step back from building social housing. Um, And again, we've seen the market become less affordable over that time. The government's main answer to housing affordability used to be building houses itself, building social houses. It stepped back from that in the last couple of decades. We've seen the problems with that approach, leaving it to the private market and propping up private investors. In fact, it's quite interesting because uh, one of the um, major problems issues in the last federal election was the rise in homelessness and general concern around it. Uh, The discussion has been that, uh, you know, people are going to be, the government will build more um, houses, but it's turned out to be a drop in the ocean, isn't it? That's absolutely right. The government has committed to building 20,000 social homes over the next five years. The shortfall is 500,000 homes across the country. So to get on top of that shortfall, they need to be building 25,000 homes every single year for the next 
20 years. The other thing to know about the government's commitment is that we're actually going to be losing 36,000 social and affordable homes uh, being wiped from the National Rental Affordability Scheme over the next uh, couple of years. So at the same time as the government is, is building 20,000, they're losing 36. So uh, we're, we're in this space at the moment where we, we just can't keep up and the government just needs to make a very serious commitment to building. So really, uh, people would say uh, it's argue, arguable that it's a human right to have a roof over your head. Uh, but by propping up uh, negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts, this is a systemic approach to creating homelessness, really, or financing it. Absolutely. Everybody has a right to a, a safe, decent and affordable home, you know, a place that they can live in, thrive in, raise their children in, be secure in. And what we're seeing is that that, that fundamental right that people have is being positioned against uh, the ability of investors to, to turn a profit and taxpayers are, are underwriting um, their, their losses they're propping up those investments, but we're not funding the homes that people need. And um, it's an absolute mystery to me why we've landed in this place. Well, I, I found it really fascinating, the modelling that uh, has been done around uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office uh, modelling that shows that negative gearing and the capital gains tax discounts is set to soar to at least $157 billion over the next decade, while in order to house people sufficiently, would cost less. That's, that's true. I mean, uh, just, just earlier this year, back in January, the Productivity Commission uh, released a big report on how much the government is spending on, on major service areas. It's spending $1.2 billion a year on social housing and homelessness services combined, and that's an absolute drop in the ocean when you look at how much the tax discounts and handouts uh, for investors are costing them. So, um, like governments again and again have just been making this decision investments over homes, and we need them to turn that around. And the other thing that I found really fascinating was the fact that people are actually paying for their own homelessness in a sense, like renters paying exorbitant rents but their tax dollars are being spent keeping investors afloat because, of course, the fact is that people who are renting are also taxpayers. That's very true. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that gets missed in the whole conversation when whenever interest rates go up, whenever interest rates go up, um, you know, the, the landlords go out into the media and they, they cry poor and say we're going to have to pass pass these costs on, we couldn't possibly absorb them. But we know that they can actually write their losses off on tax and taxpayers underwrite it and it costs us all more. When these interest rates go up, the taxpayer ends up costing more propping up these investments and they can still pass it on to the renter. Um, it's the renter who's got nowhere to go. Mm. Uh, what are you hoping? Uh, what's your campaign hoping to achieve? We're calling on the government to end these uh, handouts and tax breaks for investors and take that money and spend it on social and affordable homes. We've got a huge shortfall of social and affordable homes right across the country, 500,000 homes, and there is absolutely no time to waste if we're going to get on top of that shortfall and get people the homes that they need. If it's a policy-driven homelessness, as it were, uh, what kind of policies would you expect the government to be uh, doing if they're in good faith? 
the most important thing that they could be doing, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record about it, is to be investing in social and affordable housing. Um, I think governments really like to promote this message and this idea that people become homeless because their lives are really complicated, um, you know, because they've got a lot of things going on. The reality is people become homeless because they can't afford a place to live. And until they can get a secure roof over their head, they can't tackle the other problems that they're facing in their life, whether it's um, addiction, family violence, what have you. The only way that they're going to be able to tackle those is with a roof over their heads. So we say build the homes, build homes first. It's interesting because uh, it's also overlooked that uh, having uh, public housing stock puts pressure on uh, the um, uh, landlord. You're, you're very, you're very right. Um, you're very right because because the, the the share of social housing and public housing has been declining so much over the past few decades. You know, um, it used to be a pretty major share of the housing market, and now. Um, people are being charged whatever the market will bear and the government has no influence over the market. It has no leverage in the market anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it's actually an issue for the entire country, not just if you don't want to be served up to uh, the capitalist uh, uh, onslaught, then you actually have to use policy to maintain some fairness in the market. Absolutely. Absolutely, I agree. Mm. Thank you. Mm. It's just that people often, yeah. it, because it's characterised as uh, mm. them and us, and you know the has mm. been haves and have mm. nots, and and mm. I and I heard it today. This thing about uh, this is happening to people who are good people, you know, as mm. opposed to bad people who become homeless for other reasons. You know what I mean? Mm. Like the deserving mm. poor. And the actual fact, it's got nothing to do with that. It's to do with yeah. greed versus fairness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it, it, it's the other way around too. The number of interviews that I do where people, um, you know, try to get me to, to say, but, you know, people will put things to me, oh, most landlords are good people and they do the right thing. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, that's actually madness, right? We don't have an energy market that depends on electricity providers being good people. We regulate them. <laughs> we have a regulated market where people um, are in, are entitled, um, you know, to, to a level of service and they're protected from certain things and that's what we need in the housing market. We can't just leave it to people's goodwill. Um, you know, right now it's, it's um, completely possible and allowed for landlords to raise rents in just about every state um, and um, uh, one of the territories uh, as, as much as they like in an unfettered way. And, and we see that happen because it's allowed. Yeah. Uh, landlords, that's right. That's what they're called, not gouges. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or I lazy capitalists. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. With the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Treaty, Sovereignty and First Nations Justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. And I saw it on the television. Hear from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forp, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to parliament. 6.30pm 
Monday, February 20th at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks, Annie. It's great to be with you again and hello to all of your listeners. Yeah, yeah, it's always always good to have you. Um, There's been a really lot of stuff that I've been wanting to know your opinion on. Uh, What about uh, Mr Lowe and uh, his uh, chat with the government through the Senate committee? Uh, Well, I think um, it's pretty clear that... um uh, everything that uh, the Reserve Bank has been doing over the last week has brought living standards and the real state of the economy uh, roaring back to the front of public discussion and with climate change policy swinging in close behind that. And there is a link between the two, and I'd, I'd like to get to that point uh, shortly. But clearly, the, I mean, the Reserve Bank... I don't want to go into all the statistical details. We know where the Reserve Bank is at. The Reserve Bank is on a pathway to raise interest rates and the effect of that by their own admission is that a proportion of mortgage holders, probably about one third, can handle that quite well because they have the savings to do so. And that is for whom, that is the first cohort of Australians that uh, they are making uh, the decisions they are. The remainder, uh, <coughs> the remainder of Australians, are all harshly hit to one degree or another. Some far worse, particularly low-income people who are uh, renting. Uh, they are more harshly hit. So we know that's the, the overall trend. And even he, in front of both. Uh, the Senate Economics Committee and the House of Representatives Economics Committee yesterday uh, acknowledged the truth of that. So what we have is we... uh, I think it's interesting in terms of what it is he does talk about uh, and what he is he doesn't. We know that the standard of living for a big part of the population is going to take a big hit. And uh, uh, the thing that he does not talk talk about publicly is, of course, what this means for profits. So the reference points are usually things like uh, the employment level, level the employment and unemployment, uh, wages... But very rarely, and, and, uh, and also, I might say, uh, the inference, or not the inference, but the sort of threat almost, he is making to the government about taxing and spending. And I'd like to return to that point as well. But the main reference points are, of course, prices, uh, uh, the, the level of unemployment, and wages, not profits. Uh, in fact, in the Reserve Bank... Uh, material. There are just two, um, that is the background material to their decisions. There are just two uh, references to profits. There is just two. There's nothing in the monetary statement itself. And yet, in my view, everything he is doing is about rescuing what's going on with profits. Now, the starting point is this. 
is that non non mining profits the volume of profits have collapsed in recent times. Okay, and it's back really to um, we're back almost towards uh, the late nineteen nineties in terms of the volume of profits for non mining corporations. And in, when it, however, when it comes to mining, they are close to record highs in terms of volume. But that's not the whole story. You put 150 um, business owners in a room listening to a speech from the Reserve Bank Governor and he's telling them that they ought to do certain things, or including praise him, of course, um, uh, to, uh, with their profits. And they're saying, no, we're not, we're not going to invest unless the rate of return is increasing. And that's where the problem is. That's where the Reserve Bank is silent, and it's where it's really difficult to get hold of really useful data. But the indicators are that the rate of return on investment is falling. And that is, that is the fundamental problem in any capitalist economy. At some point in the economic cycle, that is what tends to happen. And it can either get worse and worse or uh, the major supporters of the system, like the Reserve Bank, they swing into play to rescue itself from the problem it's created. So, uh, so Don, the um, general population would um, who uh, think that capitalism or have been led to believe that capitalism is the only system that can exist um, and the government that's sitting there um, has to give the impression that... <coughs> I'm sorry, I've got a terrible cold. Uh, that um, uh, that the government's acting in the interests of the general population, but what they really need to do is get the general population who's losing out here to believe that it's an essential uh, tightening of the belt, right? Yes. Uh, everything that the Reserve Bank governor was doing yesterday was to uh, create the impression and install it into the heads of the majority of the population who see it covered in the news, very superficially of course, that he has got things under control and that everything's really going to be okay. And he actually does at some, at some point in his evidence yesterday say that, you know, every, the, the capitalist system in Australia is working really well. Well, you tell that to one-third of the population, because it's not. Uh, for about another third, it's marginally OK, but there's an increase... The, the, a big part of them are going to be trending into that one-third for which the situation is harsh. And then there is another group who are probably going to be uh, OK. Essentially, what the Reserve Bank Governor is saying is you have, you have two choices. You go along with our formula for keeping things under control regarding price increases, which is to suppress wages and to raise, deliberately raise unemployment, or we have a recession. They're the two choices. Suppress wages or have a recession. That's 
Now, the, the suppression of wages has been going on for a decade, if not longer. Uh, in fact, it's been going on for longer. And that's also been a policy. Yes, and, and in fact, what he's saying is uh, we're, we're going to... Uh, the choice he's making is that to get to a recession, that will include the suppression of wages. So it's not an either-or, although he, he sometimes talks about it like that, but the reality is that the, the ongoing suppression of wages is going to take us closer to a recession. Now, a recession is dire for a bigger part, probably the majority of the population. And he is willing to take us even towards one. And it's very interesting that in the last 24 hours, mainstream economic commentators who agree with the mantra about how wage increases cause inflation overall are saying that the likelihood of a recession deliberately created is now rising. More likely, uh, it is actually very real and it's going to happen in several uh, advanced capitalist economies in Northern Europe, and they're saying it's now more likely for Australia. So when the Reserve Bank goes on, the first thing we notice is, I mean, anyone who wants to talk about wages in any sense, whether to suppress them, which is the Reserve Bank's governor's uh, mantra, or anything else, without talking about profits, are, uh, are talking weasel words, if I could use that expression. The, the situation, I think, uh, is extra serious. I want to go back to a very simple point about what the Reserve Bank's role is. Everyone is led to believe, including messages from the government reinforce this, is that at some point or another, wage increases are the cause of inflation. Now, they've had to modify that a little bit. They're now saying, well, at a certain point, because wage increases are nowhere near causing inflation right now, they're saying, oh, pretty soon they will. And so we've got to suppress them, not because they're actually causing inflation, but because they're going to pretty soon. That's essentially what they're saying. Now, the actual legal charter of the Reserve Bank says this, that it's the duty of the Reserve Bank to conduct itself... In, I'm not quoting right now. I'm going to quote in a moment. It's the duty of the Reserve Bank to conduct itself in such a way to make its decisions uh, so that it best contributes to the stability of the currency of Australia and that's the exchange rate. That's a separate question. Then it goes on, part B the maintenance of full employment in Australia and the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. B and C are the critical bits. The maintenance of full employment in Australia. Why, Annie, would any economic manager who has got, un has got unemployment so low want to make decisions whose deliberate intent is to increase unemployment. I uh, know it's interesting because as soon as uh, these, uh, it, it, when you talk about profits, it's fascinating that uh, all those thousands of people are being ditched because 
uh, and this is right across the capitalist world, uh, big corporations are, are writing their ships by removing thousands, thousands of uh, employees. I mean, it's one of the, uh, at the moment, and it's one of the weaknesses of uh, global economies that uh, as soon as, uh, you know, this very large org- organisation decides that it's got a financial issue that they can only write by getting uh, jettisoning thousands of workers, uh, the whole capitalist system isn't as golden uh, as, as it appears. It's a real disaster for ordinary working people. But all the people who are re- re- left, I then thought to myself, as soon as they get rid of, and we're talking about thousands of people are losing their jobs, um, all the people who remain, I presume, are going to have to work longer hours for less pay. Yes, and uh, with more and more people coming back, um, uh, migrant workers coming back into the economy as well, in order to deal with the shortage. Well, so-called so uh, slave labour is on the rise, you reckon? But the really important point in this is that the Reserve Bank, um, in a sense, has fulfilled its charter by getting up, but with unemployment where it is. Uh, it is now saying that the, its deliberate intent is to create more unemployment, to raise it from those very low levels, lowest we've had for a long, long time, to raise it. And uh, it's already increasing. Uh, yeah, yeah, almost uh, overnight. The governor note, notes in his commentaries that unemployment is increasing. And how far that will go, uh, it may well be determined by how silly uh, the, these decisions are, except when you re- remember the rationale. The rationale is all about what they don't talk about, and that is profits relative to the investment that is put into uh, to them, both the fixed capital investment that's productive and, of course, the purchase of um, enough workers to do the job uh, through wages. So that's the, that's the rationale. It's the rescue of profits that we have to be thinking about if we wish to think uh, uh, much better than what the superficial sort of messaging wants us to do. So, Don, um, what, what, can, what can all of us uh, do about this? Well, there's, 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 I think there's two points there. Firstly, all, part of this comes back to what we expect from uh, the government, a Labor government, uh, which is supposed to be pro-workers, what would we expect of them and to therefore put pressure on them to do what we expect of them? The second thing is is to go a little bit beyond that. Uh, Lowe, of course, says the alternative to what he's, you know, for ordinary people is to shop around for better interest rate deals. Sure, sure. I'm sure half the population can't possibly do that. Oh, but not only that. I mean, that's that's ingenuous of him when you consider the uh, nature of the four banks in this uh, it, 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 situation. Right. And and of course, it's the profit reporting season. The Commonwealth Bank came out with their um, with their profit announcement, which was a, a big lift, a big lift in profits. Yeah, uh, but also people might be surprised at um, who owns these four banks. Of course, of course. It, 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 so. The, uh, 
terms of alternative, the, the one from low is an insult, right? The What I think we should be pushing for is firstly um, to, uh, to call for more democratic accountability, democrat, more democracy in the interaction between monetary policy management and fiscal policy management. The second thing is to defy the demand or the threat from the Reserve Bank Governor to dampen wage demands. So what we had coming up, you see, one of the things he was doing, in my view, if you read very carefully, there are two threats that he issues. One is to the Fair Work Commission with reference to its annual wage review. The other is to the government with reference to the forthcoming um, uh, Commonwealth budget. He is saying, don't allow wages to rise anywhere near the inflation rate to the annual wage review. That's what he's saying there. If you do, then I'll increase interest interest rates further. That's the threat. Even though there is no evidence, as he himself almost admitted yesterday after... This is the only thing he really retreated on yesterday relative to what he said last Tuesday, uh, that uh, wage increases are no threat to the inflation rate. But they are a problem for profits. Yeah, yeah, isn't that fascinating? say that. No, no, it's right. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating how the whole discussion revolves around um, what the uh, general population can do, and hardly ever talks about what the business classes should be doing. Like the business class is always on the line, on the side, like it's at a a, a, a schoolboy's uh, um, soccer match or something. You know. Uh, and you know what? The, the Reserve Bank in their um, in their. Uh charts, set of charts that they issue to provide the evidence supposedly for what they've decided to do, it shows that the business class have been letting the rest of the population down with um, uh, really quite... uh, Mining is separate, uh, it's a bit different, but non-mining business class are failing to um, invest in new productive capacity and um, uh, the lending, the volume of lending by the banks, the major banks, to medium and small businesses who want to improve productive capacity is uh, is flat when we talk about medium business and when we talk about small business, it's falling. So there is no commitment so, now, why is that a big deal? That swings back to climate change. 
you see, we get headlines about all the wonderful things that are being done to mitigate or to slow down the rate of climate change. Uh, of, of course, there's lots of evidence, very visible also, that that's nonsense. But sitting in there, one of the fundamental requirements is that there must be both not just public investment in reversing in in, uh, in technologies and projects and so on that reverse climate change, but also private sector investment. And although you'll hear headline stories of great examples where something like that is happening, the overall trend is no, it's they are a dud. They're not doing it. No, they're not doing it. In fact, Lowe was complaining about that to them at various business dinners in 2019 and 2020 that he had created with quantitative easing, that is pumping more money into the economy. He created opportunities for for investment, but they hadn't done it. Lazy capitalists. Lazy capitalists. It's a big hole. That's a big hole in what is required to be able to get to the reversal of climate change. Uh, the final point we need to make is this review of the Reserve Bank that the, uh, that the new government has initiated. To be brief about this, there is a review going on and the report will come in, I think, in, in, not, in, in just a couple of weeks. I can't pin down the date. Um, what Chalmers says about it is this. Well, there are two things. Firstly, Chalmers and and the Prime Minister have said that the role of government regarding the budget is to align it with the monetary policy of the Reserve Bank. Oh, my God. In other words, That's a catch-22. should align its taxing and spending to the policies of the unelected Reserve Bank. <laughs> Think that through. Yeah, yeah. That is really... Expertise. I'm just wondering when Labor Party members are going to start getting angry about that. Well, you know, if you knew your history, one of the reasons for why there was such a shocking downturn in uh, Australia during the 30s for about uh, 30% of the population was because of the Reserve Bank's policies. Well, there's a bit more than that. I mean, you know, sorry, that's a throwaway line, really, isn't it? They they made it worse. They made it worse. So the second thing is that Chalmers says, and we might end on this, he says that he wants the review to enable the Reserve Bank to be a better, quote, a better version of itself. Oh, my God. Right. Now, what does that mean? It could... I've actually been very critical of that, but I think... uh, It means that it's part of a US sitcom or something. To be a better version of neoliberalism? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which is called, in my view, you could call that neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's just another another episode of Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Or it could, and this is where I am somewhat self-critical about focusing just on that. It could mean, and this is the attitude that we, the people, and our organisations <laughs> should adopt, and that is a better version of the Charter yeah, that's right. Get a bit closer. Get a bit closer. With, there's not much wrong with a reserve bank whose primary focus <laughs> is to maintain full employment. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a whose blind, isn't it? focus is the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, 
not the capitalists of Australia. Well, we'll finish on that, Don. Thank you very much. All the very best. Bye for now. And that's the end of the show. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with this fabulous person called Catherine Tracos. It's Burn Shine. She's quite phenomenal. It's a time again And I hear On my own I sit in the dark And I will not dare Play music Even in my mind listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.